Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. So we are in 1 Kings tonight, chapter 15. We are in the second uh, of, of six studies on the art of hearing God or learning how to hear God's voice and uh, it, it has blessed me to be able to be going through the word and, and diving into uh, this most necessary and most helpful of topics. And I trust that as we uh, continue, it will help you as well. Uh, last week, we talked about who can hear the voice of God. And tonight, we're going to talk about finding the frequency or um, getting within earshot of hearing God's voice. In our, in our study last week, and I say this not by way of review as much as just a springboard into what we're talking about tonight, we, we saw the tension that existed uh, between Jesus and a group of religious rulers over the healing of a man who was born blind, but who then received his sight when he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And Jesus took that tension or the conflict that that healing created, and he defined it or explained it using a parable. And the parable, of course, was an illustration of the relationship that exists between a shepherd and his sheep. And the issue that Jesus was seeking to draw out through that parable because of that conflict was the multitude of voices that are seeking to influence the sheep with only one of those many voices actually being the true shepherd or the one that's able to lead the sheep or that even truly cares about the well-being of the sheep. And that was the purpose behind that parable. And so the challenge that Jesus was drawing out and really the challenge that's before us when we consider this topic or this concept of hearing from God is really the multitude of voices that are present and the question of how do we discern or find out which one of those voices is God's in the midst of all the others. Now, that's the thing that makes hearing him challenging, is just the multitude of voices. I think all of us are familiar with, at one point in our lives, uh, uh, being in a situation where our budget is a little bit more or a little bit less than our bills require of us. Can anybody relate to that? You know, maybe, maybe not now, but at some point in your life, you've been in a situation where what has to go out each week or out each month is a little bit more than what comes in each month. And you find yourself in a situation where you need a little bit of help because you don't really know how to navigate through that. You don't know what you're supposed to give yourself to. Now, you come to a situation like that, and certainly you begin to put up your antennas. Your ears go up because you're looking for some wisdom. You're looking for some insight. If you're a Christian, maybe that means that you pray and you ask God to tell you what to do in that situation. Well, what happens is that there are many voices that are speaking to you. There's, first of all, the voice of reason. And the voice of reason is trying to evaluate priorities and figure out what makes the most sense to pay. 
And the voice of reason will tell you to pay certain things according to what's the most important. The voice of culture will also speak to you in that time. And the voice of culture will tell you that it's very important for you to maintain your image. That your image is very closely linked with your identity. And if you don't maintain your image, you're not going to be able to maintain your identity. So you have to pay out what's important in a way where you can maintain your image and don't let anybody know that maybe you're struggling. There's also going to be the voice of opinion. The voice of opinion is what the experts say. And so you go through and you say, well, what do the experts say? The experts say, pay yourself first. So there's the 5% that goes to me. And then, and then I, and, and, you know, you look at the people that have done this before and you look at how they have navigated through it and you hear the voice of opinion. There's also the voice of desire. There's that upgraded phone that you've really been wanting. And though maybe this isn't the best time for it, it's going to come around anyways. And, you know, we rob Peter to pay Paul. And, you know, you, you get it. The idea of what is it that I want to spend my money on when it comes right now. And so the voice of desire is always talking to us. What do I want to do? There's also other voices. There's the voice of fear. The voice of fear speaks. And the voice of fear can be very loud. And what I have found is that the voice of fear is a talker. You guys know those talkers in your life? Those people that sometimes you see them coming and you pretend you didn't see them? You're in the mall and you make it look like you're shopping, but really you were just walking, but you don't want to make eye contact, not because you don't like the person, but because they're a talker and they're not going to let you go. Fear is a talker. And fear will talk to you all through the night and really won't even have anything really good to contribute, but will keep reminding you of the situation that you're in. There's the voice of fear. There's also the voice of guilt. The voice of guilt tells you where you went wrong. The voice of guilt is constantly telling that you should have gone to college. The voice of guilt is telling you that you shouldn't have bought the last car. The voice of guilt is telling you that you, you know, shouldn't have had that extra child. You know, whatever the voice of guilt says, the voice of guilt, hey, the voice of guilt is not politically correct. The voice of guilt just says whatever the voice wants to say. And there's also the voice of urgency, which is added to the mix. And the voice of urgency says, now, 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 solve the problem now, fix it now, fix it now, make a decision now, do it right now, do it right now. And there's all these different voices, and it doesn't have to be just that situation, but whatever situation you find yourself in, there's a multitude of voices that are talking to you, and we're listening because we don't know what to do. Now, the problem with all of these voices is that none of them see clearly in every direction. They all speak only according to their limited perspective. And none of those voices really have your best interest in mind. It isn't that they necessarily want to harm you. They just don't know or know how to do what's best for you. And so these voices can't really help even though they're very present. Now, there is one voice, the voice of God, the voice of Jesus, that's vastly different than the others. And it's different in this way, is that that voice is coming from one who does see the whole big picture clearly. He's the one who does know all things, both past, present, and what is yet to come in the future. And he knows what's best for you, and he wants what's best for you, and he wants you to hear his voice, though sometimes it can be hard to hear. And another problem with his voice is that his voice will give counsel that is misaligned 
with all the other voices and what they're saying. So where the voice of reason says, pay the electric, you need heat, or the voice of opinion says, pay yourself, or the voice of whatever tells you this, you might say, Lord, what am I supposed to do? And the Lord might look at you and he might say, hey, when you go out and run your errands today, take your daughter with you and tell her about the struggles that you faced when she was your age. You're like, oh, Lord, the voice of urgency is saying that's not the best thing for you to say right now. You know, what am I supposed to do? It happened just this past Easter that um, my wife and I, we had a discussion. Do you guys have discussions in your households? We're both very B-type personalities, so our discussions are very mild, typically. We don't raise our voices. We both contribute, and then we back off, and you know what I mean? It's very amicable. We, we just, that's just something there, you know. But we were discussing this past Easter because we were having guests, and, and it's a big meal, and we were figuring out how we're going to make the grocery budget work with all of our guests. And so it kind of sounds almost like an auction. You know, she's like, give me 600, and I'm like, I'll give you 300. And she's like, I'll get, she's like give me 575, and I'm like, I'll give you 310, you know. And, 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 you know, we're going back and forth how we're going to, you know, you know, zero in on the whole thing. And what she wanted reasonably so due to the influx of people she wanted double what our normal weekly grocery budget is and so you know I, you, you know whatever and it is what it is and I know it but it's annoying you know and, and the whole thing and so she goes out that morning and she takes my daughter Sarah with her and they go and they do whatever they're going to do and along the way one of the things that they had to do is that they had to open a bank account for Sarah because she's got her working papers and she's got part-time job now and she's beginning to do those things so they they go to Chase Bank and they set her up and they sign the papers and they come out in the parking lot and as they're walking back to the car Sarah looks and she sees something floating through the air and so she goes over and she grabs it it's a $100 bill So she picks it up, and she looks around, and she sees another one. And then she comes over, and she sees another one lodged under a tire. She found three $100 bills on the parking lot outside of Chase Bank. That just happens to be double our grocery bill. So so her and Georgia are looking around because, you know, we're not free money people. Like, we want to steal someone's, like capitalize on someone's mistake you know so we're looking around there's nobody there in the parking lot at all and george is frantically looking because she wants to give it to the rightful owner she's putting herself in the shoes you know and the whole thing and so finally this car drives up with the window down and she's holding 300 dollars in her hand and she's like did you lose it and the guy goes no i didn't lose it it's your lucky day lady be thankful and go (laughs) so she did you know Here's my point, is that the one who sees circumspectly and who knows all things that were, are, and will be, he knows where you're going to be when and how you're going to be in the place you need to be for things to happen in such a way that all things work together for your good. And so his voice might be misaligned from all the other voices, but it's a reliable voice Because it's a voice that sees, knows, and cares. And so the voice of the Lord is so very important. And part of our growing as Christians is learning how to listen and learning how to hear his voice. So how do we distinguish? How do we recognize God's voice when he speaks to us as he promises that he will? Now, I want to make an important distinction. And that is a distinction between the word of God written in the Bible 
and the voice of God that he speaks as the sovereign shepherd who promises to speak to us as we need in our day-to-day lives. The word of God, the Bible, is the truth of God. It's the revelation of his person, of his path, of his ways, of his morals, of his values. It's the concrete word that's foundational and that is solid and that is truth. And it doesn't change. It's the Bible. It's part of how we know who he is and it's part of what helps us to recognize his voice when he speaks. And we'll see that later on in our study. But the Bible is not the same as God's voice. See, you might be in a situation where you are married to somebody, and you married them, and you find out shortly after the wedding that the person you married is not the person that you walked down the altar with. They put on a facade, they put on a persona, they fooled you, so to speak, and they're a completely different person than the person that you thought you were marrying. And so you come to God and you say, God, I'm in this situation and it's extremely hard and I feel like I was deceived and I don't know what to do. Now, the word of God is going to tell you that you're to be faithful to that person, except, of course, there be abuse or adultery. But the Bible is going to say that you're to stay in that marriage. But what the Bible isn't going to tell you is what kind of mood that person is going to be in when they come home from work today or what kind of mood the person's going to be in who's at home waiting for you when you arrive, and how it is that you're to handle and navigate those situations. Now, yes, there's some insights, but the Bible isn't going to do that. You need God to speak to you. You need his voice. There was an episode in in 2 Samuel chapter 5, early in the ministry of King David. He was a newly ordained king. And he was full of energy, and God was with him, and there was great momentum. And there was a time where the Philistines, which were the sworn enemies of the Israelites, invaded the land. And and David, having, you know, resources and an army and some victory knowledge and some time and some experience under his belt, it says that he inquired and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go up and surely I will deliver them into your hand. And so David goes, he gives him a smacking, the Philistines flee, David finds victory. But right on the heels of that, it says that they came with a second wave and the Philistines invaded the land a second time, successively right after. And David did not assume that because God was with them the first time that he would be with them the second time. So David praised the second time, which is a very wise thing to do. And he says, Lord, shall we go up the second time? And the Lord said, no, don't go up. But this time, go around to the backside and wait across from the mulberry trees where they are. And stay there until you hear the sound of the wind rustling through the tops of the trees. And when you hear that sound, then you'll know that the Lord has gone in before you and you charge in and fight the battle. Now, let me just suggest that that counsel that came from God was not from a Bible verse. He didn't read that somewhere in Deuteronomy and say, hey, the Lord showed me in the word. What? No, that came from God. God spoke to David and said, this is the way that you're to navigate this situation. And he spoke timing. He spoke location. He spoke strategy. He spoke events happening, and David knew exactly what he was to do. God's voice was not a whim or a feeling or even a word spoken from the scripture. It was the voice of God 
speaking to David in a situation where he needed it. And so the voice of the Lord is what we're talking about. And the question that we're asking is how do we find the frequency so that we can hear God with that level of clarity and that level of specificity? So the text that we're in is 1 Kings chapter 19. The subject of our study is a great prophet whose name was Elijah. You've probably heard that name. Most of you probably know that it comes right out of the Bible. He's one of the most famous of the Old Testament prophets. He's known for his power and the things that he did demonstrating the power of God. He's one of the most influential of the Old Testament prophets because of the power and the manifestations that he uh, saw happen through his life. And he is also one of the most admired of the prophets because of the things that he did, the calling down of fire from heaven and, and all that kind of thing. Now, amazingly, what Elijah is not known for are the things that he said. Most of the times when we talk about the prophets, we're, we're talking about Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, you know, the prophets that wrote things and said things. Ezekiel, or I mean, uh, what's his name? Elijah didn't really say all that much. In fact, he seems to kind of have lacked some personal skills. He was sort of an introvert. He didn't really like to be around people. He would just kind of disappear in the middle of things, and nobody really knew where he was. It wasn't his speech, but it was his signs. It was his wonders. It was his miracles. But the New Testament tells us something about Elijah, something very interesting. It's found in James chapter 5, verse 17, and it says this. It says that Elijah was a man who was subject or that he was a servant to, he was a slave to, like passions as we are. That's just a fancy word that means feelings. Passions are feelings. That he felt the same things that we feel. Now, that's kind of interesting to me because I usually think of a prophet as not having feelings like I have. They're a level above. They're a little bit more stable. They're a little bit more secure. But what James is telling us is that Elijah was a man who is just like the rest of us. That's what he wants us to see there. That's all I wanted you to see. You, you can, the rest of the verse is uh, immaterial for our study here tonight. But it tells us that he was a man who had like feelings like as we do. He shared in the same struggles that we all go through. Now, in the chapter that's before us, 1 Kings 19, his struggles kind of come to a boiling point. They come to a head, and he's going to have a crisis in his own life. And we're going to see the solution that God brings because of this crisis of his feelings, the issues, the weaknesses that he have. Now, the scene in chapter 19, it comes right after the hallmark moment of Elijah's ministry. It's the climax of the highlight reel. It was the best of the best. It was the highest moment of, of, of why am I having trouble? I keep wanting to call him Ezekiel and Isaiah. Elijah's life. It, it was the moment that got the most likes and the most shares and that garnered the highest increase in his following because of what he had done and what he had accomplished. And it was in the backdrop of this highest of moments that the scene we have in chapter 19 takes place. Now watch what happens in chapter 19, verse 1. It says that Ahab, who was the king, told Jezebel, who was the king's wife, all that Elijah had done 
and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Now, the event that's being spoken of by Jezebel in this message that's being sent to Elijah was the episode where there was a contest on Mount Carmel between Elijah on one side and 450 false prophets of the pagan god Baal on the other side. And Elijah said, we're both going to pray. I'll pray, then you, or you pray, then I'll pray. And we'll see whose God answers by sending fire down from heaven. And we'll agree that the God who answers by sending fire down from heaven is the true and the living God. And the prophets of Baal said, yeah, you got it, you're on. And so they have this contest. And sure enough, it's Elijah's prayer that brings the answer. Fire falls from heaven. It consumes a sacrifice, burns up an altar, and dries up all the water that was all around it. It was this amazing scene where it was unmistakable that God answered Elijah's prayer. Well, a battle ensues, and Elijah single-handedly slays with a sword all 450 of those prophets. It was the highlight of his ministry. It's what Jesus' disciples were talking about when they said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? He was famous for this moment, for this victory, for this manifestation of God coming down from heaven. But now, the day after this amazing victory, he gets a DM from the devil's wife. Jezebel sends a message to him and says the gods, the same gods that he just defeated, do more to me if I don't kill you like you killed them by this time tomorrow. Now, that's an amazing message for a prophet to receive. You would think, well, what would his reaction be? You would think he'd, he'd be thinking, bring it. <laughs> you know, I took down your 450 and I'll take down you and your little dog Toto too. You know, you'd think that that, that would be the, the response of Elijah, but it's not because he was a man of like passions. He was a man who had vulnerabilities. He was a man who had weaknesses. And thus what we see happen with Elijah now on the heels of this, as Jezebel brings this threat to him, he goes from faith to freak out. You might know that feeling. Maybe you know what, it, what it's like to go from a position of faith one day to a position of freak out the next day, even though you just saw God do something mighty in your life the day before. Watch this. It says in verse 3, it says, And when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba. So he goes from Mount Carmel all the way to the southern tip, probably about 150 miles he runs which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself now went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, or I've had enough now, O Lord, take away my life. For, and that's a reason word, this is what's stressing him out. He says, for I am not better than my father's. Now, this is an amazing thing to see happen in this man of faith who just saw such a great victory. 
He gets this message. He's spooked. He runs for his life. He goes 150 miles, leaves his servant, separates himself in isolation, gets alone. And then he says three things to God. He says, I've had it. He said, take away my life for I am not better than my father's. Now, We know, because we're thinking people, that he didn't really want to die. Because if he really did want to die, he could have just stayed where he was and let Jezebel kill him. He didn't really want to die. He's acting in frustration. He's responding to his feelings here. But what he does say and what he is feeling is he's feeling like, I've had it. I've had enough. I don't want to do this anymore. This is too stressful for me. This up and down, this not knowing what you're doing, what's going to happen next. I've had enough of it. But then he gives the reason, and this is very insightful, the reason why he's feeling this way. He says, for I am not better than my father's. Oh, now we get a clue into where these feelings are coming from. See, what Elijah has done is that he has taken to himself a pressure that is not from God. And that pressure is a pressure to perform wherein he feels like he needs, in order for God to keep moving in his life, he needs to keep getting better. He needs to keep going further. He needs to attain and obtain more spiritually even than the great men that came before him. Now, this isn't something that comes from God, but if he's carrying this pressure, you can see why he ran away. Because it's never going to get any better than fire from heaven and killing 450 prophets of Baal. You can't have a greater man. I mean, you, maybe you could. I mean, God could do a Red Sea thing or, or, or actually move a physical mountain. But really, that's kind of an unrealistic expectation. He has reached the pinnacle. And now he's at a point where he thinks, it just, I can't be more. I can't do more. I can't even believe more. I, I have maxed out my capacity of effort to serve God. I've got nothing left within me. Now, that pressure didn't come from God. That pressure came from Elijah. He's wearing that himself. It is possible, it is possible to know God's power in your life, yet not know God's person intimately, or know God's peace, or know God's presence. And that's kind of the state that Elijah is operating in here. He's being used of God. He's letting God use his life, but he's not letting God love him. God, you can use me. But do you realize that if that's the mentality that a person has, where God, you can use me, but I'm not going to let you love me. I've got to earn it. I've got to be better. I've got to do more. Do you realize that if that's your mentality, and, and forgive me for this, but it's true, you are treating God like he's a pimp. Really? Because what does a pimp do? A pimp uses people for their own profit, but has no care for them personally. Now, that is not the heart of God, and that is not what God does. But that's what Elijah has ascribed to himself. God, you're using my life because of what you can get out of me, and I've gone to the maximum of what I can give you, and you can't expect any more out of me. God didn't put that on him. God just wants Elijah. Elijah gets the benefit of being used as part of the plan of God, as we're going to see later on. But God doesn't use people in order to try to extract something from them and get more out of them and then just leave them to die at the hands of a wicked Jezebel. If God cared for you at the beginning, he's going to care for you all the way through to the end. 
But Elijah has this mentality that that's not the heart of God. He's not letting God's love into his life. He'll serve, but he won't let God just love him. He won't let God just care for him. We weren't made to serve God. We were made to know God. And listen to me, it isn't enough for any human being to simply walk in God's power and yet not know and live and drink of God's person. Because there isn't enough prophetic power that can be given that will satisfy a soul because a soul can't be satisfied with being used of God. A soul is satisfied by knowing God. That's what we were made for. He says, God, I am not better than my father. Now, he's on a mission, and he's going to keep moving. Watch what Elijah does next in verse 5. It says that as he laid and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on the coals and a cruise of water at his head, and he did eat and drink, and he laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. Isn't he a man of highs and lows? He just ran 150 miles. Now he sleeps for two days. But sometimes, isn't it interesting how we as human beings, that we have a tendency, just like Elijah did, to think that grace is accidental? Okay, God, you came through in my life, but you didn't really mean to come through in my life. You came through in my life last time I had a need, but I don't know if you'll come through in my life this time that I have a need. I kind of feel like I've used up all my credits, so to speak. I met a couple one time that had trouble conceiving, and they prayed to the Lord, and they sought the Lord, and God heard them, and they conceived, and they became pregnant. But then they went to the ultrasound, and when they did the ultrasound, the radiologist said, well, we see something that gives us concern that this baby might be born with some issues, you know, and there might be something going on there. And all of a sudden, this couple that received by faith this blessing from God that they were seeking him for now has this choice of whether or not they're going to freak out or whether they're going to continue on in faith believing God that he's going to continue to be good even as he has. Now, I know my tendency is to think, oh, Lord, you were good to me there before, but that was an accident. It just happened. Or I think, oh, man, I didn't give thanks right. And because I didn't thank him, because I didn't repay in some way, because I didn't pass it on, now he's getting me. And that's why. Oh, or I should have just been content. I shouldn't have even asked God to do something in my life because now, oh, he knew and he, you get what you pray for and this whole thing. Listen, listen, why does God do this thing now where he brings an angel to give Elijah a baked loaf of bread and a glass of water? Do you realize he didn't eat that good earlier in his life when he was being fed by ravens? I mean, when he was in the will of God... Not running away, he was fed with a raven and he had to drink from a dirty brook. Now he's running from God and God's so willing to extend grace to Elijah sends an angel with fresh bread and clean water. Twice. But Elijah can't receive it because he's got himself in the mindset, God's against me now. His grace was accidental. He's not going to deliver me in this. And unless I take care of myself, Jezebel's going to get me. Now he's going somewhere. He doesn't tell us where he's going. But we find out because we read the whole chapter. He knows where he's going. He's got a plan. Watch it. It says in verse 8 that he arose and he did eat and drink and he went in the strength of that meat, that food, for 40 days and 40 nights 
unto Horeb, the Mount of God. Anyone know the other name for Mount Horeb? It's Mount Sinai. Where, what happened on Mount Sinai? That's the place where God spoke from heaven and he gave his commandments to Moses and the instructions to Moses for the people and also the blueprints for what would become their tabernacle and later their temple. And he gave them all of his will with very specific detail. Now, why would someone go to Mount Sinai? Not by accident, but intentionally. This man is needy. He wants to hear from God. He knows that he's lacking something. He has the power of God in his life. He even has the anointing of God on his life. But he doesn't know God in the way that he needs to know God. And so he's seeking a place where maybe God will meet with him in a dynamic that he has yet to experience. He goes to Mount Horeb. And it says that he came thither into a cave and he lodged there and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. God comes through. God doesn't say, yeah, you're out of my well. I'm not speaking to you. God comes through and it says that he said unto him, God speaks to Elijah. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Isn't that great? You run, you run 350 miles to hear from God. I've known some people that have run 350 miles because of a fear that they're not in the will of God and they take their whole family and they go somewhere else or they move somewhere out of desperation or for whatever reason. And God comes through, he speaks to Elijah and he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, I don't think that God is speaking condemningly. I think what he's saying to Elijah, sarcastically even, is Elijah, you didn't have to come all the way here for me to speak to you and talk to you. Well, why are you here? <laughs> you didn't have to do that. That was a lot, a lot of trouble. But God knew he was going to go, and God was gracious and met him. Now, listen to the response of Elijah, because he's a man of like passions, because he's a man who's a lot like us, because he's a man who feels the same things that we feel, and essentially what's about to come out of his mouth is he's going to say, God, you're not fair. You're not fair. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. Anybody else in here ever think, God, you're not fair? Watch his response, verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He says three things to God in this sentence. He says, first of all to him, that I have been jealous for you. I have been jealous for you. Now, this is different than being jealous of someone. When you're jealous of someone, you want what they have. But when you're jealous for someone, you're jealous for them. They are the object that you want. Now, I have a wife, and I happen to love my wife very dearly. But I also have five kids. And because I have five kids... My kids get my wife. So I am jealous for her because they have her. I'm jealous of them for her. Now, I'm glad my kids get my wife because I've seen kids who don't get their mother. And I don't want my kids to have that. So I'm willing to loan her out for a while for the sake of raising stability. You know, that's okay with me. But I'm jealous for her because I want all of her affection. I don't want her to give them any, really. Like in my, I want all of it. I'm jealous for her. 
God says in the New Testament that he's jealous for us. Meaning God looks at our lives sometimes and he sees that something else has us. Some other affection, some other interest, some other something has our true affection. And God knows it because he sees to the very core of our hearts. And he says, I'm jealous for you. I want your affection. I want your attention. But Elijah looks at God and he says, God, I have been jealous for you. I want you. The reason I do what I do, the reason I run like I do, the reason I fight like I do is because I want more of you. That's what I want. I have been jealous for you. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is he says, they, that is the children of Israel, they have forsaken you, torn down your altars, slain your prophets with the sword. Now what he's doing is he is accusing God of giving the rebels his affection and attention and overlooking him who was seeking. That's why he says the third thing, I, even I only am left and they're seeking to take my life. In other words, what he's saying is, God, you're not fair because I want you, I have served you, but you have done everything for them and now you're going to let them kill me. Now that's not fair. That's what Elijah's saying. But it's really not fair for Elijah to say it. And here's why. Let me ask a question. Did Elijah wait even one minute when he got the DM from the devil's wife? Did he even give God a chance to come through and work in his defense? He didn't. See, he got a foreclosure notice in the mail that the bank was going to come and take his house And rather than wait to see what God would do or how God would work it out, he immediately went out and got two more jobs, worked 4,000 hours, burnt himself into the ground, ruined his family life, and then blamed God on the other side of it. That's what he did. He just started running. He didn't even give God a moment to do it. But this is what's going on in, in Elijah. Now, here's God, and here's the love of God. God doesn't go to Elijah and say, I did what? No, he says, Elijah, come here. Son, come here a minute. Watch this. Verse 11. He said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. He says, you know what you need, Elijah? You need a retreat. You need a mountaintop experience. And so here, I'm going to give you one ticket to the Sinai conference. I want you to come to the top of the mountain Because I'm going to do something in your life on a mountaintop that you desperately need in this moment of your crisis. He says, come to the top of this mountain. And it says, behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. That's the second time in the verse that it says that in verse 11. It says that he's before the Lord on the mount and it says that the The wind broke the rocks before the Lord. So the Lord is there, but watch this. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, the second thing that happened, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now that's amazing to me. Because basically what happens at the Sinai conference is that Elijah hears three amazing messages. Three amazing messages. Now, mind you, okay, the wind, okay, the quaking or the shaking, and the fire are all biblical symbols of the moving and the power of the Holy Spirit. All three of those things. Jesus likened the Spirit unto a wind in John chapter 3. 
In Acts chapter 4, the spirit entered the room and it shook the ground where they were. And John the Baptist said that Jesus will baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. The fire, the wind, and the, and the shaking, the quake, all speak of powerful spiritual things. Dynamic, man. Tony Robbins came in and he shook the ground of the place. But it says that the Lord wasn't in it. He was there. But he wasn't in it. He was there. But he wasn't in it. See, you can have a miracle... And God's not in the miracle. Or you can not have a miracle, and you can still have God. See, the presence of God and the person of God is not dependent upon the miracle or the manifestation or the powerful thing, the fire from heaven, the raising of the widow's son, the multiplying of the oil and the flour. See, yeah, God can do those things, but God's not in those things. God is altogether separate. God is constant. He's there regardless of what's taking place in the atmosphere around you or in the arena that you're in. God was not in those things even though he was there. It was before the Lord. But watch what happens next. It says, but after the fire, watch this, there was a still, small voice. When the crowds left and the arena emptied out, and the volume came down, and the tone of the place came to a halt. And Elijah, probably for one of the first and maybe only times in his life, sat in stillness. And the sound of no other voice was there. Behind him, for the first time in his powerful, prophetic, experienced life, he heard God in a way that he had never heard God before. A still, small And we know it affected him because it says in verse 13 that it was so that when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood in the entering in of the cave and behold, there came a voice unto him and said, what doest thou here, Elijah? Now, did you catch the difference? See, back over in verse 9, it says, The word of the Lord came to him. Official letterhead, God's desk, you know, the prophetic office. The word of the Lord came to him. What do you do here? But here it's different. Here it says a voice came to him. He hears it personally from God. And God says to him, and you know how he, you know how he recognizes it? He recognizes it because it's the same as what God said when it was official. It's very biblical. That's how he recognizes that it's the voice of God. What are you doing here, Elijah? I wonder if Elijah went, He responds in verse 14. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, threw down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I wonder if the thunder maybe was out of it a little bit at this point as he's realizing, like, oh, God, you're closer than I thought, aren't you? You're more involved than I... Watch God. God doesn't even address it. He doesn't say, let me, let me tell you something. Watch what God says. Verse 15. It says, The Lord said unto him, Go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you come, anoint Haziel to be the king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah shall you anoint to be prophet in your place. 
And it will come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet, yet, and here's the pinnacle God says as he laughs at Elijah. He says, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees of which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. This is amazing because now it, Now that Elijah hears God's voice, what he hears is very specific things. He says, I want you to go, and I want you to take the pathway that leads to Damascus. (laughs) That's a long walk. He's at Sinai. Damascus is actually north of where he started. He's got a long way to go thinking about all the things that have gone down here. But God speaks very specifically, very personally, and with great clarity in a way that Elijah hears it in a way that he never did before. But here's what God communicates by giving these instructions to him. He says to him, essentially, Elijah, I'm doing something that I still want you to be a part of that's bigger than you are. You think that it's all about you and you're the only one left and, you know, Jezebel and the prophets and this whole thing and they're going to win. But I want you to know that I'm bigger than even what you understand. He says, I also want you to understand that what I'm doing is going to continue even after you die. That's why you're going to anoint a king that's going to come after the other king. And you're going to anoint even a prophet that's going to come after you because you're not the last one. You're going to hand the baton onto someone else. And God says, and listen, you're not the only one. You're not one of one. You're one of 7,000. And most importantly, Elijah, what you need to know is that you're not better than any one of those 7,000, and neither are any one of those 7,000 better or more loved by me than you. This thing's a lot bigger than you are, Elijah. But what you needed is you needed to learn how to hear my voice, to settle down. So what was it that kept Elijah from hearing the voice of God in the first place? And I just want to take a moment to apply this, and then we're done. First of all, he was believing wrong about God's favor. He was believing wrong about God's favor. He genuinely believed that if he was going to hear from God, then it was up to him to earn the relationship status that would bring him to that level. And that was a faulty faith, that until he felt qualified, he couldn't accept that he could hear the word of the Lord in the personal way that God wanted to speak to him. You know, if you think about it, it's kind of not his fault. A little bit earlier in his ministry, God had told Elijah that he was to live with a widow woman, and she was going to help him eat during the years of famine. There was three and a half years of famine. And God said, go live with this woman. She's going to feed you. And so he goes, and she's got no food. She's got this tiny little bit of food. And he says, give me some water and some food. And she says, I got nothing. I'm going to make it for my kid, and we're all going to die. And Elijah says, look, God sent me here. Make me a little bit of bread with what you got left, and God's going to take care of you. And the woman, in faith, replied or responded, and she made the bread, and she gave it to Elijah. And God miraculously provided for this woman throughout the entirety of the famine. She never ran out of meal. She never ran out of water. Everything was good. But then this woman's son dies unexpectedly, and she goes to Elijah, and she says, look, I didn't ask for trouble in my life, but you've brought it with you, so do something about my dead son. And so Elijah goes upstairs, and he spreads out on, this, on the boy. He breathes on him, and God brings the young man back to life. And the woman looks at Elijah, and she says something that I think hurt him, even though she didn't mean it to. She said to him, it's 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 24. She said, now by this, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. 
Now by this I know that you're a man of God. <laughs> you mean the food and the water and the provision and the favor and the blessing and the laundry that I folded and the money I provided and the groceries I put in the refrigerator and the floors that I cleaned and staying up with you all night while you were throwing up because you were sick. You mean that none of that counted for you to believe that I was being faithful to God in my service for you, but now that I've raised your son from the dead, now it counts? See, we live in a performance-based society, don't we? And sometimes it's easy for us to project that onto God and to think that if we want to have the next level with him, then we've got to bring it to the next level for him. And that's not the heart of God at all. And part of the reason why Elijah only had official and he didn't have personal is because he didn't believe right about the favor of God. I want you to know that if Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, then that entitles every single one of us to hear his voice. And you should believe that. Rocky and I had this amazing opportunity a couple of years ago. Somebody gave us tickets to a Knicks game. I'm not a huge basketball fan, but Rocky plays, and he is into the game, and they were free tickets, so we, we took up the offer, and we went. Now, when the guy handed us the tickets, he said, now listen, you're not going to go in the main entrance at, down at Madison Square Garden. You're going to go around the back and come in from the back entrance. You're going to see a red carpet unfolded. Go on that red carpet and just show your tickets to the people at the doors. I said, all right. It's just a piece of paper. It was e-tickets, you know, so I go. We go around the back. We walk up. There's a guy in a suit. He's got an earpiece. He looks pretty legit. All the crowds and masses of people are out front congregating, waiting for the opening of the doors. We give the guy the paper, and the guy looks at us, and he goes, all right, come on in. He opens up. We walk. We see the crowds in the lobby. It looks like a riot in Tiananmen Square. And we walk up this red carpet, just the two of us, up over the crowds by ourselves, and we are escorted into a room. Let me tell you about this room. You've heard of jumbo shrimp? You've heard of colossal shrimp. You have not heard of boomerang shrimp. I mean, it fill- I took a picture of it. It filled my hand. It was like a meal. It looked like a whole filet mignon in the shape of a shrimp. It was massive. Whole lobster tails, filet mignon, the whole thing. We're, me and Rocky are in there. We're going like, are we alone? We're just, and we're starting to doubt whether we're in the right place. And we're starting to feel like we're imposters in the scene. We look up. Spike Lee is standing right in front of us. Over there, Chris Rock. We eat for an hour. We go into the game. We're sitting courtside. We're going like, what are we doing here? Shh. And Rocky's like looking at me. I'm looking at him. I'm like, just act like we're supposed to be here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was insane, you know, just to be in this setting. And at halftime, we go in, and I, and I looked at Rocky, and I looked around at the scene, and I said, Rocky, isn't this great? I go, you know what's amazing about this? Is that all these people that are in here, they have worked their entire lives to get to this level to be in this room. And we got in for free. <laughs> and then I said, but really, even more than that. I said, here's the sad part. I said that for all the people that are here in this room right now, this is the best it's ever going to be. And it's over in two hours. And for you and me that got in here for free, this is the worst it's ever going to be. Because we're going to heaven. We're going to be in glory for all of eternity. 
But the feeling that we felt in there was like, we don't belong here. We're not supposed to be here. Any minute, someone's going to come and kick us out. And sadly, that's the feeling that way too many Christians have about their accessibility and the closeness of relationship that they can have with Jesus, the Son of God. Oh, Lord, you saved me by accident. You didn't really mean to. You were merciful and kind, but I'm not really worthy to be one that you would speak to, that you would talk to. We're believing wrong about God. The cross qualifies you. Do you understand that? The cross says that you can receive. So here's the frequency. It's the frequency of faith. And the frequency of faith says, God, I know that you cared for me in the past, and that means that you're going to care for me in the future. You've led me thus far, and though even though it means a word that's spoken in my ear, you're going to lead me from where I am right now. And that is why the Bible says in Psalm chapter 46, I think it's verse 10, it says, be still. Because the frequency of faith can sit still and wait for the salvation of our God. God says that your strength is in quietness and in confidence and that your strength, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, or maybe it's verse 7, somewhere in there, it says your strength is to sit still. And to shut out all the other voices. Don't listen to the voice of reason. The voice of desire. The voice of culture. The voice of opinion. The voice of fear. The voice of guilt. The voice of... Shut it down. And say, God, speak. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, as we, uh, as we look at this man, we look at this amazing testimony of your work in his life. And then you recorded it in the scripture, Lord, in a way that we'd relate to it we could see ourselves right in the middle of the text. And I confess to you, it's easy for me, Lord, to fall into the place where I don't expect to hear from you because I feel like I'm not good enough or I'm unqualified. But tonight, on behalf of my brothers and sisters, we stand as a congregation and we declare before you, Jesus, that we believe that the cross qualifies us to be those that would hear directly from you. We're asking tonight, Lord, that you would replace doubt with faith. That you would move us out of the realm of unbelief and of self-assessment. And that you'd move us into the realm of quiet confidence with our eyes upon our master. That tonight, Lord, you would teach us to wrap the mantle around our faith and to take our eyes off of all other things. That we would hear and see only you. So tonight we declare that you're our Lord. We make you our shepherd. We believe in you as our king. And we believe that you'll lead us and that you care. So help us, Lord, where we can't help ourselves, and even where we can. We trust you in all things. Fill us with faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.